0: Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, dark rooms, woodshops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world, and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. Today's episode is a little different than our normal format. I'm going to interview Al Vieira, who isn't a fabricator, but instead an artist, educator, and author of the recently published book, On the Rock. On the Rock is a collection of oral history interviews documenting the marble carvers working on the restoration of the Acropolis in Athens. The book describes these craftspeople as the inheritors of a millennia-old tradition. Few carvers exist today, fewer pass the Acropolis entrance exams. Their work is a highly technical amalgam of past and present, yet what these master marble carvers do and how they do it has been undocumented until now. Allison is an exceptional artist, earning her MFA from Bard College and her BFA from Cooper Union. She exhibits internationally, including exhibitions at the Basel, Storm King Art Center, Freeze Projects, Public Art Fund, the High Line, and the Sculpture Center. I'm excited to discuss her book, which has been published by Soberscope Press in 2019 and is available for online purchase. So,
1: On the Rock is a book of interviews that I conducted in 2016 in Athens. Um, and the interviews are with the master marble carvers who are, are or were Working on the ongoing um, restoration of the buildings on the Acropolis, and uh, I mean that's sort of the premise of it. The interviews are edited like monologues, as opposed to like dialogues, because I really wanted the these sort of these master crafts people's voices to be able to communicate without my, without me inserting myself in it. Um, my goal when I was interviewing with them was just to like keep them talking, mm-hmm. basically, um, and just ask the next question, and You're the just next prompting question. Prompting them, yeah, just keep just keep prompting them to tell me more, tell me more, tell me yeah. more. Um, that was really like my only function.
0: What what was your interest in talking to them? Like, what did you want them to tell you? Well, you know, I've always,
1: um, ever since I was a kid, I've been really interested in the ancient world. You know, when I was a child, it was like interested in mythology and archaeology and paleontology Mm -hmm. and all of that sort of thing. But then as an adult, um, I don't know, I sort of fell in love with Athens as a city, a contemporary city when I first visited there in 2007. Mm -hmm. But part of what drew me to it as a contemporary city was that it was this contemporary city sort of floating on the top of like 7,000 years of other cities, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so there was this like exposure, physical exposure of time Uh that's really rare. And the Acropolis is kind of the ultimate symbol of that. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's the most prominent symbol. And of course that build, those buildings themselves, um, are already sort of time amalgams because of the number of different iterations that they've been through over thousands of years. But so because of that, I kept on like revisiting Athens, Mm -hmm. literally, I mean, not, not, not in my mind or not figuratively, but on a plane, (laughs) on a plane, you know, in going there and, and, um, And traveling all around Greece and going to different sites there and and from different eras. But always, every time I went, I would always go up to the Acropolis. And with each successive trip, and we're talking like about five trips or something. Mm -hmm. um, And I'd go up several times each trip. I found myself increasingly watching the workers who were rebuilding this building. Um, these these buildings. Mainly at that point, you know, we're talking like first trip there, 2007, up to now. Yeah. Um, the buildings they were working on are the Parthenon and the Propelia. The Propelia project is done now, but the Parthenon project is continuing. And those are two buildings
0: on the outcropping.
1: Yeah, out Brock, those are yeah. two. Bu- so the Propelia is the entrance. That's mm-hmm. like the ramps that you walk up to get in there. You go up even as a tourist through there and then through this sort of colonnade with little side buildings, so that's the propelia. It's sort of like the entrance and the framing device for the layout of all the buildings on the Acropolis. It's also part of the Periclean building project, right? So we're talking like 430-ish BC um, after the Persian War, et cetera. Um, you know, old old temples are destroyed up there, burned by the Persians. I think, could be getting my facts slightly wrong. There was a lot of conflict. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fact check that. But um, anyway, as like a huge sort of um, civic show of power mm-hmm. in a way, um, Pericles is a sort of powerful general, uh, the victorious general, Went upon, we set out on, to do this building project on the Acropolis and rebuild a bunch of fabulous temples and buildings. The Prophelia okay. and the Parthenon as we know it.
0: The Parthenon that we think of as the Parthenon mm-hmm. today being those buildings. So when you were visiting, you could see people kind of um, restoring or reconstructing parts of those buildings.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like contemporary people carving stone. Um, literally with like air compressors and chisels or hands and chisels or saws. Um, the Parthenon was and is, well, it always changes which, which side of the Parthenon is, is currently under reconstruction, Mm -hmm. but, um, it'll be completely under scaffolding. So you'll have these like beautiful bare bones, gorgeous columns, But they're encased in this, like, crystalline superstructure, this, like, geometric superstructure of scaffolding with workers climbing all over it and, like, fluting new sections of the columns. Yeah. So you're stuck in this, like, crazy time loop where you can't help but think about the original construction, but you're watching the sort of reconstruction. Uh And they're using the tools. how did they do it? How are you doing it? Right. And you're watching them like use the tools that you use in your studio mm-hmm. sometimes. And, you know, and, and it, it's, it's really exciting. So, so you just
0: started talking to them? Or? No,
1: that was terrifying. No, I <laughs> did not want to interrupt their work. I just gawked
0: uh-huh. for
1: like many years, took a ton of photos, recorded some sort of like tentative video. In 2014, I was in Athens uh, for a, a gallery show and um, the gallery put me up for the summer um, To make the exhibition nice. you know, there, yeah, well, it was a heck of a lot cheaper than shipping <laughs> it from the U.S. So I think that would that they really, you know, made a good economic decision on their part. Um, so yeah, so I lived in Athens for the summer. I guess it was about two or three months for the summer of 2014. And one of the things I wanted to shoot was a, a video of the workers on the Acropolis, uh-huh. on the Parthenon specifically. I had seen them working before, but, you know, it was the summertime and I don't know what days they worked. I didn't, I had to rent equipment, so I needed to get it done in like two days. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make sure that like, I knew when they were going to be working. I knew that they weren't going to have the day off, that it wasn't some obscure holiday, that it wasn't their break time because they start really early in the Mm -hmm. morning and they end really early because it's it's hot as blazes, you know, over there. So... I asked the, I asked the gallery director, um, you know, do you know anyone who knows anyone who would know their work schedule, uh, in order to make this, this happen? And yeah, she knew, she turns out, you know, she's like incredibly so well connected socially and she knew someone who knew someone who, um, was a, in the band, where this guy who the, was the uh. drummer in the band actually worked as a restorer, as mm. a marble carver, on the Acropolis, and his name uh, was Nikiforos Sampson, and he's a delightful guy. And is he's, he one of your interviews? Yeah, in the he's book? one of my interviewees, yeah. and he like so generously. He's one of the younger carvers, and so he actually offered to take me up on a tour, and he did, and. He met me in the Propylia, and he was this, like, really sweet fellow, um, and immediately just, like, swept me behind the scenes. It's awesome. Yeah. Paulina Velotti is the other really important person for how this project happened. Um, Nikiforos, on that first day that he took me on a tour during the tour when i mean i walked into the cella i walked up the minaret and i stood on the top of the parthenon with these two he introduced me to pollyanna who was also a young carver working on the work site they went to school together and the three of us got got on really well Mm -hmm. um, and i stayed in contact with them and i ended up contacting pollyanna around 2015 when i first had the idea for the project saying like would you at all be interested in working on this with me? And this nothing would have happened if she wasn't involved with it. Mm-hmm. She gave me all of the access to her former coworkers. She had since been left off, uh, laid off, but she maintained warm relationships with her coworkers. She went on every interview with me. Wow. She organized all the interviews with me. She did all the on-site translating. She was amazing. So, like, I really owe this entire project to her.
0: Could you describe kind of behind the scenes, um, because when I was reading the interviews, it was the mo- one of the most fascinating things, the process of uh, finding a broken block mm-hmm. and then making it a whole block.
1: Yeah. So, it's a, that's sort of, there's a short version and a long version. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll do the long version? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, going all the way back to the 19th century... <laughs> The really long version
0: is
1: (laughs) going all the way back to the 19th century, shortly after Greek independence, um, from the Turks, when they, you know, uh, fought their war of independence from the Ottoman empire. One of the sort of early big nationalist acts, I mean, nationalist in a, in a positive way, Mm -hmm. like you have a new nation and you're going to do something for your nation. Um, Acts that they did was restoring the Parthenon, and it was damaged from that war. It's been damaged for hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah, it's also been had you know basilica built inside of it. It has had a mosque built inside of it. Yeah. It's still to this. Z- it was blown up once, right? It was <laughs> blown up once by the Venetians. Yeah, um, like in the 17th century. And, you know, to this day, there's a spiral staircase behind one of the columns that you can walk up. That is the spiral staircase from the Ottoman minaret. Uh. So they clipped the top of the minaret off pretty quickly after the Ottomans yeah. were out. Um, Optics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Optics, exactly. Um, but the staircase is still there. Um, but I, I digress. But so shortly after the War of Independence was won in the middle of the 19th century... Um, this fellow Balanos was, that's his last name. Um, Balanos was sort of, uh, tasked with doing a restoration of the Parthenon. It was a very, very important task for like the new nation and, you know, bless his heart. Um, he did a very good job for the standards of the time. And part of what they did was there was a lot of like sorting of blocks and Mm -hmm. things like that because imagine there's it's quite a big rubble field and not a lot of excavations that happened. There's also like a lot of buried rubble, so started with Balanos. However, a lot of what Balanos did is horrifying by today's standards of restoration. First of all, he used um, iron connectors, Mm -hmm. so pretty quickly. As we know, iron oxidizes, and it um, expands, and it has a different expansion and contraction rate than the marble. So not only was it uh, um, oxidizing and rusting and expanding, but the temperature expansion, expansion and contraction as temperatures shift were different, was different than the marble, and so therefore really cracked the marble quite seriously and almost crumbled.
0: So it did more damage. More damage.
1: Yes, much more. Mm Also, there's a, an example that um, one of the interviewees, uh, Yorgos Disipres, talks about in the book where Balanos actually couldn't quite figure out how these particular um, ionic capitals fit together and would work, and so these fragments of them. And so what he did was he actually cut several of them that were very similar and put them together to make one complete one uh-huh. out of several broken ones. Again, not great. Not great. Quite bad. <laughs> um, so, so there was that. So the Balanos restoration. So, so much of what the people are doing today is actually undoing and fixing all the damage that Balanos did. Okay. Okay. So this new phase of the restoration really started, um, in the eighties and under the guidance of Manolis Chorus, who is really the preeminent scholar and the sort of leader. Um, he's now retired, but he was, he's really the sort of, um, grandfather of this whole Mm -hmm. kind of modern, um, restoration of the Acropolis. And so a number of the guys, especially the guys who were retired that I interviewed, um, Uh, and about half of the people probably worked with chorus and the guys who were there from the beginning, um, talk about how for the first couple of years, all they did was sort blocks, Mm -hmm. sort fragments. So once you have a piece, a large fragment and you know, then you have to figure out where the heck it goes. I don't know how they do that. Mm -hmm. There's amazing, engineers, archaeologists, scholars, conservators that, I mean, this, I only talked to the marble carvers, but there is an entire significantly sized team of some of the top scholars in the world, all Greek, you know, working on this project that are all part of the restoration project. Right. The marble carvers exist almost outside of that as like, as like a separate team, although they do, of course, work in concert with the people who are sort of making the decisions and sometimes they consult on the decisions as well so once this brilliant team of scientists figures out exactly where a block goes they also have to determine well what did the other part of the block look like yeah that's usually you know whether it's an interior whether it's a a piece that's on the interior of the cell wall or the exterior or what side needs uh, what kind of treatment because the treatment of an exterior face of a block is different than the uh, how they carve the marble yeah it's different than the interior treatment or if it's a column drum or an architrave or what is this block
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so that's the step i would say that's probably step two it's like where does it go what does the rest of it look like and what does the rest of it have to do have to function step three um is that again these are my steps this is my understanding yeah um I feel like if somebody from the Restoration listened to this, they would, like, be, you know, have their head in their hands. They'd be like, oh, my God, no, it's...
0: No, it's good to translate it into kind of layman's terms because I think the process of kind of healing a block into its original form is very um, interesting.
1: So then if you have this massive block, let's, for lack of... Just for an example, let's talk about a column drum. So you have a fragment of a column drum. Let's say you have a fragment that is half a, roughly half a mm-hmm. column drum, but it's not a smooth surface, right? It's like a three dimensional break where it, where it chipped where off it cracked. the other half. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. it completely cracked in half or say maybe you only have 40% of it. I should say here that the way that they're restoring the Parthenon is that no, they are not making in enti- for the most part, they are not making entirely new blocks for the most part. They're not creating something that wasn't already there. The sort of ethos mm-hmm. is that you complete what's there and stabilize what's there. But they're not going to, like, build the roof, you know? It's not going gotcha. to be finished. And making air quotes when I say that. It's not going to be finished and look like the building from Pericles time. Yeah, they're not
0: making it the perfect the perfect um, replica of what it was in right. its heyday. They're just doing what they can with the pieces that are left behind. Exactly.
1: Right. They're not like building a new one. Right.
0: I think there was, um, I think it was Christina's interview where she was talking about reconstruction versus construction. Mm -hmm. And I think her last quote was really interesting because when she was talking about the full construction or like a complete rebuild, she was saying that um, that's where she thought human vanity Mm -hmm. has the chance to come in and she wasn't comfortable with it. Yeah, exactly.
1: I think that, you know, Christina was sort of an interest. she was wonderful. Everyone had really strong personalities. Mm -hmm. um, And that was something I really hoped that would come through in the interviews. And and that's, that's a line that a lot of people have picked. It's funny, Christina has one of the shortest interviews. And that's a line that so many people have picked up on. Because she is the one person who's possibly naysaying this whole thing. She's yeah. not saying we shouldn't rebuild the whole thing. She's saying maybe even what we're doing now yeah. is vanity, is is vainglorious, you know, um, is is hubristic. And maybe it's best to just leave it a pile of unrestored rubble. Mm-hmm. So I mean that and I, mean, that's, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> no, who does, right? But um, then, and that's coming from somebody who's worked decades on yeah. the project, um, and is like getting very close to retirement. She also maybe assists. She also then says, "Oh, I don't know, maybe not. You know, but I, I really yeah. liked that she was willing to kind of go there in yeah. her thinking." But on the other hand, um, and I'll get back to the how we construct the blocks mm-hmm. later. But on the other hand, um, you have this lovely guy, um, Michalis Genulinos uh, who I'm actually going to be speaking with in Athens shortly, um, who like his grandfather was a marble carver, his father was a marble carver, he's a marble carver, it was his grandfather's dream that he work on the Acropolis someday. I mean, this guy is like fully in it. And I remember, I think he was one of the first interviews I did, so I was really nervous. But I remember at one point, and I should say that Michalis doesn't really speak English. Uh, Most of the interviewees did not speak English. I could understand small parts of what he said, but at one point he exclaimed, Aya Acropolis, which means St. Acropolis, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Reverence. Yeah. And so, and he said it like, both reverently and sort of lightly, but you could see the way he sees it is very different. And I think mm-hmm. at one point he says, "I would keep going and finish the whole thing, you know, it's so you know, so fantastic. I think we should complete the yeah. entire thing. So throughout the book, there's a a lot of uh, divergent sort of feelings about it. And some people are just happy to do the work, you know, and aren't thinking about, oh, should, aren't necessarily wrestling with that question. Yeah, but it uh, seems
0: like a cup co- in a couple of the interviews, people just talk about the stability of the project, Mm -hmm. even though it's not that stable, which we can get to (laughs) to later, but just in an unstable economic environment, the stability of that project is a huge thing for a marble carver.
1: Totally. Like to have that job. Should I go back to the block thing? Yeah. Okay. Um, So once you have this broken fragment of ancient block, you have to cast the three-dimensional surface. So there's a physical plaster cast that is made off of the ancient block that shows the exact three-dimensional puzzle piece that has to fit into, exactly fit in millimeter to millimeter into the ancient block in order to complete it with new marble. Okay. So it's, it's like there's an actual physical mold made of the broken face of the block. The physical mold is set up in a workshop. Mm-hmm. And remember, it's just a surface, right? But they have to figure out the whole dimension of what this block is. So they figure out the whole dimension of this block. It could be massive. I mean, we're talking like 20-ton pieces of marble Yeah, some here. of the ones they were talking about moving around were Yeah, huge. outrageous, yeah. yeah. And so, but you have this surface. And it's set up in a hand-carving workshop mm-hmm. with a pointing machine. And there's the b- new block of beautiful, gorgeous, pentelic marble that's been quarried from the same vein of marble as the original Acropolis, just a few miles north of Athens is Mount Pendeli. Mm-hmm. And um, the original Acropolis marble came from the South Slope, and the marble that they're using for the restoration comes from the North Slope, north, well, North-ish. And, um, but it's the same exact vein. The South, the South Slope is sort of tapped out. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, that in itself is so cool. Like, the material continuity is bonkers. So then they are um, using a pointing machine, which is a super ancient technique, which has been used, I think, since Roman times as a um, mechanical means to reproduce a three-dimensional object. Mm -hmm. And what it is is it's a series of um, metal arms that sort of lock into place and measure a point in three-dimensional space. And that machine is then is like a particular point is sort of located on the cast, then the entire machine is lifted up and placed on the block of marble, and that single point is located through chiseling gotcha. in depth. You know, so it's like a three-dimensional point we locate it in the x and y and z but in order to actually find it you need to chisel in yeah and so that's done thousands of times lifting and moving this entire heavy steel armature that measures a point in three-dimensional space back and forth Um, and some of the interviewees really talk about how physically taxing that is but it's done with incredible accuracy. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the only ways that you can reproduce something with that level of fidelity. Um, because the seal between the two blocks, in order to be stable over time, has to be almost perfect. So once that... Um, the, creating the replica of the broken, the negative space that's left by the broken block... Um, is really important to have it done really accurately. In fact, for very large pieces, um, like a broken architrave, they're actually put on massive rollers. And these are blocks that are like 30 feet long. Like, wow. Yeah, huge. I mean, the architraves of the the Parthenon are very big, Mm -hmm. right? So when they're working on one of those, they have them on steel rollers, the ancient block on one set of steel rollers, and the new block carved... On another set, and they actually roll them to wow. paint pink um, red clay slip on the ancient block. Roll them together to touch oh, to see where they rub or don't fit perfectly. Exactly yeah. to see where the high points are. In the same way that I don't know if dentists still do this, but back in the day when you got a filling, you would a dentist would put that red piece of paper between your teeth and have you rub your teeth. They basically do that with giant with 20 massive twenty tons of <laughs> marble. <laughs> Massive marble slabs um, and roll them together. So then after that, after the carving is perfect or as perfect as it can be, then um, both sides of the block, the ancient and the new, get drilled. And so there's a, an elaborate sort of drill system that's actually, it's done with a brace, but it's also, it's manually operated. It's mm-hmm. not um, a sort of machine that does it. It's like a person. A person is holding the drill. With a machine.
0: Yeah. And th- I think there was a description of someone how they could f- who was holding the drill, how they could feel the texture of the marble they were drilling through. Yeah, through the drill. Yeah,. It was like th- um,
1: Demetrius Zervas talks about y- creating um, and working with a sort of or it, it, the, the team sort of had to invent a way to create a telescoping four meter, four meter drill bit. Uh
0: huh. For Marvel, for Marvel, <laughs>
1: yeah, and and um, the amount of ingenuity and creativity and problem solving that's happening up there on a daily basis because yeah. every problem is a new problem is astonishing. Yeah, and he talks about being able to feel if you're hitting quartz. You know, which is like glass, which is much harder than marble. Mm-hmm. And you can break a bit, you can crack the marble. And this is one of the reasons why mechanical tools or, say, like computer driven tools are not as good at this at this point because they don't have that sort of. Yeah, computer just keeps drilling. Yeah, it will just keep drilling. Yeah. So once the drilling is done um, on both sides at a completely accurate, perfect angle, then um, titanium rods are threaded between them. And so titanium rods connect it, and titanium, unlike iron, um, has a very similar expansion and contraction rate hmm. as marble. So it's not going to be doing that kind of cracking that iron was. And then they are cemented together with an adhesive called um, Alborg white or Danish white cement, which is a very specific type of cement. Um, and it's clamped with giant ratchet straps uh-huh. for uh, 28 days, wow. which is the curing time for the cement. Um And after that, then there are actually... They always leave a sort of, like, little grace area on the new... Piece of marble mm-hmm. that then gets trimmed down, like a damage protection. Yeah, layer. exactly. On the new marble, so of a, a, you know a, a centimeter or so that then gets planed off with this
0: giant saw, and Which then sounds terrifying. I read the description. Yeah, there. yeah,
1: that's Nikiforos who yeah. used to run the giant and he's saw. like, Just
0: two millimeters at first, and I'm like, that, yeah, it's like everything's done, and you're taking this tiny amount off,
1: and you're running that saw r- two millimeters from the ancient marble. Yeah. Because remember, it's not just the new marble; it's the new, it's the sandwich of the mm-hmm. new and the new and the old. So, sorry, this is a long no, description. No, this is a good. Um, and so then after, then it goes to the this giant wet saw, which planes it off. You know, seven millimeters at a time. It doesn't go. Um, it doesn't cut the whole face at once. It cuts the face just with the thickness of the blade mm-hmm. passing on this um, movable trolley that it's on. After that, it goes back into hand carving, and the final surfaces are all done by hand. Mm-hmm. So hand carving is something that is really, really essential throughout the whole process. And so there are there's a traditional hand carving marble school on the island of Tinos, which has sort of been the stronghold of traditional marble carving.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In Greece, it's sort of sustained there um, in a way that it, it hasn't sustained as strongly in other places. And so... 14 out of the 15 people that I interviewed are either from Tinos or had gone through that school. Wow. And then the block gets actually rigged up into place with, like, this incredible communication between Michalis, Michalis Junlinos is actually, like, the guy who does most of the sort of rigging and moving. He Mm -hmm. does more of that than he does carving these days. With these blocks, because the seal between them has to be so geometrically perfect because remember all of these buildings don't use mortar yeah that's crazy they're just held together with gravity and balance Mm -hmm. so you can't have a bump
0: no or like a degree (laughs) of an angle off at the bottom so part
1: of the whole process of the restoration is that in order to if you have a column that's mostly standing Mm -hmm. but the fifth block from the top is damaged You need to figure out a way to fix the fifth block from the top. Yeah. And maybe the third block from the top is also cracked. So one of the things they're doing is they actually dismantled the entire, like they dismantle a whole wall. Wow. Sometimes they actually, if the column was really quite good, they, they do tell a story about lifting an entire column at once just to move out a bottom block which is
0: crazy. Yeah, it sounded like it terrified
1: them (laughs) in the the description. Yeah, even these guys who are like, unflappable sounded completely terrified when they did this. So the engineering marvels that they were doing Mm -hmm. there, these, like, unsung engineering marvels are happening every day. But one of the stories that's told is this moment when they're dismantling a column for the very first time. I mean, this is a column that has actually stood, that had not been disturbed Uh in 2,500 years. It survived the Romans, it survived the Venetians, it survived the Ottomans, and it survived Balanos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and earthquakes. And earthquakes, lots
0: of earthquakes. We throw in some nature. Oh yeah, and too. the Persians. And sun.
1: Let's not forget about the Persians, mm-hmm. or the Spartans, you know, and all of the ancient wars too.
0: Yeah. And, and the sun. And water.
1: And water, and everything. Uh-huh. Of course the surface is damaged, but the interior was strong. Um, But they wanted to, they needed to, for whatever reason, they needed to take it apart. So this is the first time in 2,500 years that a lot of these blocks have actually been separated from each other. And so one of the stories that a, a number of people have told is this moment when two of these column drums are coming apart for the first time. And they smell wood. You can smell like a piney, cedary wood smell, and that's because um, the between the blocks at the very center there is a square peg, not very big, mm-hmm. maybe. I mean, I honestly, don't know, but I think you know maybe ten inches square yeah really d- couldn't tell you exactly but not not so large made of wood it's a two-part block mm-hmm. a two-part peg one part goes in the bottom drum one part goes in the top drum and they're connected um that's called the bolos the peg or embolio yeah it's called the embol sorry it's called the embolio not the bolos it's called the embolio Um, that's the name of the wooden structure Mm -hmm. that's between the column drums that sort of acts like a peg to hold them together. Inside of that is a second piece of wood that's an actual peg, like a a, a cylinder, Uh a dowel, called a polos.
0: It hadn't deteriorated at all. Because it had no exposure to water, no, oxygen, or any nothing. Wow! It was
1: completely sealed off from all elements for 2,500 years. That's crazy. It's crazy, um, but it shows how incredibly precise the planing of the interior faces of the column drums were.
0: Yeah, and they t- the carvers talk about how making a perfectly smooth surface is like the ultimate test of your carving mm-hmm. skills they're yeah. tested on that at the school on Tinos
1: yeah they're tested in that in the school on Tinos and there used to be a, a extremely rigorous test for entrance into the workforce um not the work the, the Parthenon uh-huh. crew, the Acropolis restoration crew and that was also part of it naturally mm-hmm. because that's the thing you're going to be doing the most that said, on the interior of the column drums, it's actually not a perfectly uniformly smooth surface, interestingly enough. Um, it's, the exterior is very smooth. The, the, uh-huh. So the, the perimeter, the circumference, for a certain amount, uh, a certain distance, is very smooth and has an absolutely perfect seal. Say the first 20% is perfectly smooth, gotcha. perfect seal. But then between the embolio and that perimeter, it's actually a, there's a slightly recessed rough carving. Huh. And that's also used um, for the, se- the blocks of the cella wall. And it has a really, really cool name. I don't know if they use this name to describe the way it's done on the column drums, but it is, the na- this term is used to describe the way it's done on the interior surfaces of the cella, Blocks Mm -hmm. like the the rectangular blocks that make up the cellar wall, and it's called anetherosis, in which it literally means door framing. And so, because this is this is like an ancient mortarless joining technique, they they think that it also helps during seismic events, that there's less of a chance for the block to crack because friction, less friction, less bouncing. You know, if it's if the blocks separate and yeah. bang
0: back down, there's less of
1: a point where it can crack.
0: Talking with the carvers about the technical skill of carving marble, has it influenced your sculpture practice? It's
1: funny. I, I, no. <laughs> In a word, no. Um, I was carving all sorts of things before mm-hmm. I talked to them. I never carved marble, but I carved cinder blocks, I carved bricks, I carved all kinds of things you're not supposed to carve. I was creating um, my own amalgams of, of trash and plaster and all of this to sort of create a sort of um, studio index putting stone, if you will, and carving that all with power tools and hand tools. That has been less a part of my practice in mm-hmm. recent years. Um. sort of concurrently with working on this project but I don't necessarily I don't think that they're me stopping that is necessarily related to the interviews for me the interview project is like it's not my art yeah it's another project it's a non I'm an artist who made a nonfiction book
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And for me, I'm interested in how it enters that world, the world of nonfiction books. I don't even consider it an artist book, you know, in quotes. Um, I mean, I
0: think artists, uh, for me, making art is like an expression of curiosity Mm -hmm. and, like, interest in how things are made or why things are made or who's making them, Um, which seems this book is. But that doesn't mean this book is an artwork or has anything to do with art. It just for me has the same mechanism of yeah. curiosity in
1: it. Totally. I, I it absolutely has that. But I also think that's what drives researchers mm-hmm. and I think that's what drives scholars and I think that's what drives authors and what drives any sort of yeah. curious person. It's not right. art specific. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I see it more uh, having a place in that sort of world. That said, I can't, you know, you can't deny how closely lined it is with the interest that I explore in my studio. Of course. Um, but for me, they're pretty separate. Yeah. The studio is about me. Good. (laughs) (laughs) And and this book is really not about me. It's only about me in so much as I sort of spearheaded it, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why I edited myself out of the interviews. Yeah. I I didn't want to be the voice in conversation with them. Yeah. I didn't want to highlight myself there. I wrote a brief, you know, five-page introduction or something, said my thank yous, and then I just
0: want to let them talk. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to hear them talk about it. It's a great project.
1: They're amazing. (laughs) Um,
0: What is your favorite tool? I ask everyone I interview. Oh, my God.
1: So my my work right now is very sort of Mm non-tool-based. Which is surprising, all things considered, but in terms of like my favorite tool, even though I haven't broken it out in like I don't know a couple years, uh-huh. it's it still defi- favorite. Definitely my angle grinder. <laughs> not the first person to say that. <laughs> so powerful, so versatile. Yeah. Uh, how can you not love an angle grinder? What kind do you have? DeWalt, obviously. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what kind do you have? Mitabo. Oh, fine. <laughs>
0: Obviously. <laughs> um, is, there, is there a marble carving tool that you found to be the most like fascinating to watch or to hear about? Oh, that's interesting. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the chisels. Because mm-hmm. there's like a whole system of like
1: stepping down. Yeah.
0: So I ended up using the Greek
1: names for chisels because I felt like they were a lot more specific in the way that like a culture that has, or a language whose culture has a deep history with something has better words for it. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that the chisels or like the marble carving tool that I was most interested in, just because our access to the type of chisels that they have here, first of all, they're not commercially produced in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Do people make their own tools? Yeah. There is like this one guy in Tinos, of course, of all places, who is a blacksmith who, for years, made specific custom chisels for the Acropolis workers. Because wow. what they're doing on the Acropolis is actually um, looking at ancient chisel marks and reverse engineering. What the chisel, Wow. What the chisel actually would have been like in order to you know use a similar chisel on the new marble. So that guy was making these custom tools. like what is the pitch? How many teeth are there? What's mm-hmm. the pitch of those teeth? How wide is it?, uh, that sort of thing. Apparently, that guy is no longer doing custom work anymore. What a shame. I know. I, I part of me wanted to interview him, but that didn't quite work out. But I think that's another really interesting uh, part of it. So anyhow, um, but he does actually make the tools for the students at in the Tino School. You know, when you go there, you get these sort of special hand-forged mm-hmm. chisels that are not, like, you know, stamped out of a machine mm-hmm. somewhere in China. So they, they are using really special tools. It, but one of the carvers did really talk about the fact that the people to produce these special tools are not really around anymore. Yeah. And so um that's been a little bit of a problem. I'm not a I'm not a stone carver. Certainly not. No. Um there are similar things of course that we use. So it's not to say that we don't have them at all, but you know, while a Greek marble carver would call something a kopidi, we'd call it a pitching chisel. Mm-hmm. Which would you rather hear? <laughs> <laughs> like kopili, or pitching chisel. Yeah. You know, um, it, one of the tools that is sort of the most used is called the veloni. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are, you know, are talking over and over again about the veloni in the book. That's a pointed chisel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they call it the veloni, the big nail. Veloni yeah. also means needle in Greek. Um, you know, there's the the slidiko. It's a small tooth chisel. The fagana. The big tooth chisel the llama the big flat chisel there's also the glossa which is a tongue-shaped chisel the words are just a lot more evocative because for us like dislirico, small tooth chisel who cares yeah. right fagana why would you want to call it a large tooth chisel yeah where a large tooth chisel can mean so many things so many different things and different carving right but a fagana World. is a specific thing mm-hmm Right, erislitiko is a specific thing and that's why I chose to use the yeah. Greek terms and, and that's why I think that the, the chisels are actually like really sort of special in fact, um, Yorgos Aguilopoulos who is one of the um, foremen mm-hmm. of the project uh, who is still a carver but he sort of oversees the, the, the teams of carvers at this point he was a d- such a delightful guy and uh, we had a conversation in his brother's, his uncle's barbershop. He's in his, probably in his late 50s at this mm-hmm. point, but it was his uncle's barbershop was where he wanted to meet me. So sure, we'll do an interview in a barbershop. Um, and so he was such a spirited guide. He was like, "Alison, Allison, you know, like, you will come up to the Acropolis and I will lay out all these tools for you. And you can see exactly what they are because he was giving me this very 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 long explanation of first you use this then you use this then you use this oh wait I forgot you got to use this before that Mm -hmm. etc etc and then he did I went up to the Acropolis and he laid out the tools beautifully on a like new block of Dionysian marble and it actually ended up being an image in my book where all of the sort of main tools are laid out there um thank you Agilopoulos and Kaleanda
0: Thank you so much, Allison, for discussing your experiences researching and writing on the rock. Listeners can purchase it online. It's published by Sobercove and distributed by DAP Artbook. A final credit to the Bryce Bagia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com.